Welcome to the Ignite Physio Podcast. This podcast inspires physiotherapists and other health professionals to continue learning and growing in their practice and career. We explore professional issues with a fresh lens and delve into topics that help to expand our capacity for growth. This is episode number 34, and I'm Andrew. And I'm Maxie. So today we're going to be chatting with a couple of uh, special guests about the topic of uh, car insurance regulation for physiotherapists in Alberta. And it's definitely not a topic that's discussed much uh, within the PT community, but I think there's a lot of nuances that would be helpful for our community uh, to be aware of. And I'd like to introduce you to our special guests on the show today, Simon Cook and uh, Julie Chartrand. Simon is a physiotherapist and clinic owner in Edmonton, Alberta, and currently serves as the council president with Physiotherapy Alberta. Simon was also involved in the working committee in the creation of the Diagnostic and Treatment Protocol Regulation, otherwise known as the DTPR. And Julie currently holds a claims examiner position with Peace Hills Insurance, but she spent many years as an accident benefits adjuster and has intimate knowledge of the protocols. Simon and Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. And so, Maxie. <laughs> thanks for acknowledging. <laughs> so before we jump into things today, that was a, a pretty brief introduction just to what the podcast is going to be about. Um, but I was hoping that you could share with the listeners just why you feel this is an important topic for physiotherapists to, uh, to know more about. Well, I think from the physiotherapist side of the of the picture it's important to know about because they these are rules and regulations that do govern portions of practice within Alberta I think outside of Alberta um, it's it's been interesting to watch and track how different jurisdictions and different legislation go with the flow sometimes and they look to other jurisdictions as far as you know what are we going to use in our area of practice so New Brunswick and Nova Scotia I think both looked quite heavily at the protocol regulations here in Alberta when uh, designing their system for for auto injury claims as well. So I think that's why it takes on a, a bigger picture. And then there are very useful pieces within it, I think, for all practicing physiotherapists as far as things such as di- diagnosis, uh, consistent reporting guidelines, uh, the importance of communication, and some ideas and strategies for perhaps practicing the uh, biopsychosocial model of care that they might not be used to. So for me, as a practicing physiotherapist, and one that saw pre-DTPR and now works post-DTPR, I think those are the, those are the big kind of pieces that I consider anyways. Fantastic. Jill? Well, we feel that physiotherapists are an important piece of the puzzle. I mean, our clients when they're injured they tend to see a physiotherapist and or HCP and they're our first point of contact so we want to make sure that our insureds are receiving proper information and proper education on their recovery. Physios may realize over the years that not all insurers and adjusters are created equal (laughs) 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 but we also need to know that the insurers and the HCPs need to realize they have a mutual goal which is helping our clients recover from their injuries, being properly educated and getting uh, sustainability from their recovery. So we all have to remember that this is a process and the protocols are a work in progress. I think that's a that's a really solid point too that you know not not all physiotherapists are perhaps created equal either or at the same point in their practice and some may need more support some may be working just fine and some who've been working for a long time may need to think about how they are providing care and, and use that to evaluate their own their own performance so and that's a good point Julie. So um, I mean, I think I want to reinforce or Andrew and I want to reinforce that even though we're talking about legislation that's happened in Alberta as Simon pointed out other jurisdictions are you know everybody looks to to other jurisdictions to see what's going on and and you know how they can apply the similar sorts of policies um but also I think just as you're you've both stated there's a lot of um 
nuggets that I think are going to come out of this just in general um, in terms of communication, the biopsychosocial model, um, especially if you're treating folks with uh, motor vehicle accident um, injuries. So um, if you're not from Alberta, please stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Don't don't just don't sign off right leave. now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in today's episode, we want to cover you know a fair bit of ground regarding the DTPR and um, just some areas that our audience may not be familiar with. And you know, I thought before we dive into things, you know, I think it would be helpful um, for our listeners to have an overview of uh, the regulations in terms of its history and the legislation. And um, and just was wondering if uh, you guys can just you know talk about how it came into being and, and what prompted this uh, development. Well, I can I can speak to that. I was involved pre uh, pre DTPR with three of the larger insurance companies in in Alberta that were interested in uh, get for the most part, getting some common uh, reporting guidelines in place. So we started that process, and, and out of that grew some, some very good initial contacts, I think. Physiotherapists were producing more consistent documentation. Communication was improving within, within the physio uh, insurance um, lines there. And then under some government pressure to contain automobile insurance costs came the idea of coming up with a with a set regulation for how injuries sustained in motor vehicle collisions would be managed that would offer some cost containment on the insurance side and then out of that grew a lot of other potential benefits that have actually been realized for for the medical community as well it reduced visits from injured albertans to primary care physicians because um, Albertans were encouraged to see physiotherapists and chiropractors first. It enabled physiotherapists and chiropractors to give diagnoses, which up until that point were, was not an option. Consistent reporting did lots of things uh, for, for all those involved. I think everyone was speaking common languages. There wasn't a lot of uh, deciphering that had to be done within reporting. Um, and goal setting was was a big part of of this process moving forward that that the patient or the uh, the injured person would be involved in the goal setting the goals would be function based and they would be measurable so that was a that was a big driver for change there too and then i think it did i think it also uh, solidified the cost side of things for initially for insurers which was an important aspect as well and it certainly helped ease some pressure on the healthcare practitioner side as well not uh, having to worry about whether bills were going to be paid or, or not too. So it's a bit of a, I started with history and then moved into some of, you know, what kind of happened as a result of that. So I hope, I'm not sure if Julie has anything to add from the insurance side or. That's pretty much it. I mean, pre-DTPR, um, thousands of dollars were being spent on treatment plans that basically had no end. Um, there were therapies that were being provided that weren't necessarily evidence-based, more passive treatment than active treatment. So uh, by developing that program, I think it started in around 2001 to 2004 um, in, with the insurance companies and obviously some therapists that were involved in that as well, that they created that idea of evidence-based treatment, active treatment, good communication between the insurers and the therapists so that everybody, again, had the same goal, wanting to get the client better. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but just in, in terms of that, that working relationship, that partnership, um, it really sounds like, you know, at least at the um, sort of governance level, um, you know, insurers and 
and physios and chiros. Chiros are at the table as and, well. And medical doctors. And too. medical doctors, yeah. right? Yeah. That this is kind of like, it seems to me like a, a really nice case study or case example of, of, of different stakeholders coming together and really making something good happen out of it. And that's what I think was was the whole heart of it. Um, I mean, has it blown up into something else? Yes, possibly. Has there been <laughs> drift? Absolutely. Um, but definitely that was the purpose of creating the pre-protocol program, at least between those insurers and therapy clinics, is that that was their ultimate goal. And then when the in in government got involved, you know, things changed, things evolved, the wordings had to be developed. Um, so, you know, I think it's a good program but again, it's still a progress. It's still a, a work in progress. So prior to the DTBR, was there uh, a limit on what uh, patients could claim them from a, from a minor injury settlement standpoint? Pre-DTPR, all they had was a policy limit of $10,000. There was no limit or cap on anything. Oh, okay. And then since the DTPR, then that the cap became, what was the amount? Well, there's a minor injury cap, which is for bodily injury claims. So for the people who have been hurt in the accident by someone else's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, so the minor injury cap has obviously changed over the years with interest. Um, but that is for settling claims for people who have been injured as, as a result of someone else. Okay, uh, under the Section B or the DTPR, there still isn't a cap, but there are thresholds and limits when it comes to different types of therapy, such as physiotherapy, occupational therapy, psychology have thresholds that can be met. Um, chiropractic, massage, and acupuncture all have limits, and those are specific limits. So what would you say are some of the key takeaways that um, clinicians should know from DTPR? Well, I can start on the clinical side, <laughs> I, I guess. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to Julie's answer because I always try to learn from any, you know, any experience I'm, I'm taking part in, and this I'm hoping to learn some tips on how to you know, communicate better with insurers or what have you. But for me, I think the, um, just it reinforces the need to have conversations with the client about you know what are their what are their functional goals and expectations and do we reasonably think that they're going to be able to to um, achieve those goals within the within the confines of the DTPR or within the confines of physiotherapy treatment uh, so, so that's one I think the the one of the other nice parts too is that while they may be a little bit blurred now the DTPR does recognize certain red and yellow flags as far as you know risks for delayed recovery and you can identify those early on in the process and discuss that with the with the client and then also with the insurer the insurer is aware very early on in the reporting process that the client may have some warning signs of delayed recovery so that you know that uh, the insurer can start engaging or start thinking perhaps okay this person may not recover as we expect, so we might have to be lining different things up for that. Sorry, is that would that just be physical? Uh, yellow flags, or are there other? There, yeah, there are other. Psycho- there are other flags. ones that you can that you can identify as a practitioner for sure, Maxie. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Andrew here. Just a quick break from the podcast, as I wanted to let you know about an innovative web-based tool that I'm building that's going to help optimize your treatment approach and achieve better results with less stress. The reason I'm building this app is to help myself and other therapists more deeply understand our patients so that we can avoid the potential pitfalls that can jeopardize treatment outcomes. So much of what impacts treatment is hidden below the surface, and this tool will help adjust how you approach each patient based on who they are. Think of it as Outcome Measures 2.0. Make sure to check out the show notes for a link to sign up to get my latest updates. 
All right, back to the show. That starts to, you know, as you well know through other avenues, that starts to blur a little bit. But you can certainly, using outcome measures how you choose to, you can certainly identify some of those those risk factors for sure. I think those are the those are the big ones I can think of right now off the top of my head. Julie, any thoughts? I mean, the program that we believe um, that it was set out for all stakeholders to provide better service to our clients. And that's really the biggest takeaway that the insurers should be taking from it. Um, the DTPR has provided the better communication between the HCPs and the insurers. Um, we're becoming more aware of the red flags, the yellow flags, psychosocial issues. So adjusters, again, they don't necessarily have any rehabilitation background. So it's up to the therapist to communicate that with them so that they know if there's going to be some complexity to the rehab program. You know, does this person have underlying depression that, you know, maybe we need to send them out to see a psychologist, even just for some coping skills. Because if they come in with poor coping skills, and this has been so traumatic to them, um, they need to have an opportunity to weed that out and take care of that, even though it might only take one or two sessions, but to understand that, you know, if they learn how to use these coping skills, they can deal with this sort of situation better, and then anything coming up, stressors of litigation, if that may be the case, or whatever the case may be. Um, I mean, and also having discussions with the therapist for action plans. When the therapists are seeing these yellow and red flags, communicating that with the adjuster so that better action plans can be made. That's, that should be the focus. And one one thing I missed was the the role of the injury management consultant. That I think we're well. Here's a teaser for another podcast where we're going to speak about that at a at a at another date. I I believe unless well, I we're get actually fired. covering it today too. Uh, I so get yeah. fired, but, um, but the 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 ability of a of a healthcare provider to be able to ask for a second opinion very early on in the process, either to confirm a diagnosis or ask for help in how to manage perhaps a patient that's not getting better at the rate you'd expect. That's embedded within the within the protocols, and that is not necessarily something that's easily done with uh, with people who are outside the protocol or just your average uh, everyday injured person that you're seeing. So, and I don't think the majority of uh, I would say the majority of new physiotherapists don't know that exists. And I would think that with some of the some of the conversations I've had with insurers as well, particularly new adjusters don't understand that process either. So it's definitely a piece that we've encouraged uh, government to perhaps you know do some education around and, and surrounding. Um, so I think that was that was a very. Uh, I think it was a bit of a groundbreaking piece to have in in 2004 was this idea of the of the second opinion or this or the specialist kind of consult to help get a treatment plan going. So that that's an important aspect. Well, too. it's a great resource. I think that's not really being used very much, and it's a shame that it isn't being used because it because it really I think is going to deliver better care to the patient, but also just helps the therapist and the insurer actually have a better understanding of how to navigate some of those trickier cases, right? Absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah. So one of the things <clears throat> I know is in the guidelines is like, you know, these different timelines, right? So, you know, you should be alert, you know, identifying alerting factors within three weeks, for example. You know, and, and Maxi and I were chatting about this before, you know, the uh, the episode was, how rigid are these deadlines, right? Uh, let's say that it's after three weeks that you identify some of these uh, alerting factors. Does that impact care? You know, what, what happens? I mean, I, I just was wondering if you guys can speak to that. I'll defer to Julie maybe for the first part here, right. and then I can give my then I can give my practical answer. <laughs> well, 
the DTPR regulation does outline that there are specific timelines. So the AB1, which is the Notice of Loss and Proof of Claim form, is to be submitted by the insured or the injured person within 10 days from the date of accident or practicable. The AB2 treatment plan is also to be submitted according to the regulation within 10 days from the date of accident or practicable. Some insurers have relaxed that a little bit to mean 10 days from the assessment date. Again, still encouraging the client to get in as quickly as possible. But that also depends on the clinic scheduling, you know, if they have room to get an assessment done, you know, if they wait till the fifth or sixth day by the time they call a clinic, sometimes they can't get in within the next five days. So um, some insurers have relaxed it a little bit to that degree, um, but technically the, the regulation does say 10 days from the date of accident or practicable. Now, in order to refer for an IMC, I believe the regulation says within 21 days from the date of accident. On a personal side, I think that's a wee bit early, but I'll let Simon talk to that. <laughs> but again, if we don't get people aware of the timeframes, then people will drag things out, and that, call, that, that causes chronicity in their injuries. It causes chronic pain. It causes chronic stress. It causes fatigue. And, it, and if they're not addressing it quickly, and that's why these timelines were put into place, is to get people in, get assessed within a specific time frame. Um, if certain time frames are missed, I mean, some insurers, again, we talked about it earlier and not created the same, um, they, you know, are a little more lackadaisy that as long as their AB1s and AB2s are submitted within 90 days from the date of accident. But again, that's three months from the date of accident. What if they don't get in for treatment until the 70, 80th or 90th day? That's three months without treatments, right? Um, I can speak for Peace Hills. Peace Hills is very and I don't like to use the word, but I'll use it anyway, we are very strict with those timeframes because we know how important it is for people to get in for, the, for that assessment and treatment right away. It means more if they get in right away. So we are very strict with getting our people into assessments within at least 10 business days from the date of accident. We want those AB1s and AB2s submitted. We even ask for AB3s. Not many insurers actually ask for that. We want to know how our clients are doing. So when we get an AB4, we know what our next step is going to be. We get that communication from the therapist. Ding, ding, ding. We've got lots of issues. Okay, maybe we need to do an extension. Maybe we need to send them to a specialist, whatever the case may be. But that's why those timelines are important. Yeah, and I think practically it comes down to communication with the insurer. I think if the injured person has a reasonable reason for being on day 11 or day 12 or 14, then most people, most insurers are reasonable. And the, and the in my experience, the physiotherapists will still complete the paperwork. But it is, it, it's when it does start to drag that we have to remind ourselves what the purpose of the protocols are and it is for early access and early intervention following injuries sustained in a motor vehicle collision to to care so that you can get that advice and education at the very least to, to start or assist your recovery or if you need extra help to get you onto that extra help you need. Uh, I, I would be very surprised to see somebody coming at day 40 and expecting to be within the protocols but I certainly know that it would happen too so it's uh, 
most of most of the things I think they come down to that communication piece. If you're able to get the insurance adjuster on the phone and you know and explain why perhaps this is going to be a little bit delayed or why this one's going to be a little bit different, then most people most people are very very reasonable, and then you can proceed with a plan from there. So, but I think you know the the letter of the law is those those guidelines those time frames do give some very reasonable um, well timelines for things being done and there's a reason behind it and then the practicable part does change of course and, and that would be on a person-to-person -person basis I think well and, and just you know thinking back to you know my practice and you know when I was practicing in private practice and you know sometimes things start to slip right like and time just seems to evaporate you know and all of a sudden you're at oh my gosh this person's been here how many treatments how many weeks and so these timelines I mean if you have to be vigilant about really making sure that you're within a certain time frame or number of treatments and I think I think it just it does that it makes you a bit more aware and uh, you you you're, you might be looking for things or more attuned to things and more willing to pick up the phone and and call the adjuster or or another healthcare provider or physician or whoever that you need to communicate with. I think the the alerting factors piece the, that Andrew started the question off with those are pretty those are pretty straightforward that you can you can see them within those first 21 days and at least have them on paper that you know what I'm considering I am considering this immediate baseline headache following the collision as a as a warning sign here and we may need to follow up on that I think I think the majority of them once you're into that three or four week mark or into the month and a half then you're starting to slip into some of the more chronic -y kinds of things or the persistent things that we see so uh, I think the majority of the three week warning signs are pretty straightforward and what would you guys recommend, uh, you know, in a situation where a therapist is uh, highlighting that there's a potential issue, there's a red, you know, orange flag or yellow flag, and you make the adjuster aware of that and nothing is being done on that? Because, I mean, I, I got, I've been in that situation personally myself, and I think that, uh, you know, I think, I think that's, it's great having, you know, both of you guys on the podcast here because I think it's like, how do you deal with that, right? Like, how do you, as a, as a therapist, you want, you're trying to, you know, uh, you know, you're recognizing these things, you want the best care for your patient, but it is really a team effort. So any recommendations in terms of, you know, Simon, from your personal experience, Julie, from, from your side, how do, how do you make that move forward when you feel like it's been stalled out? I mean, in the last few years, before moving into a bodily injury position, I found less and less phone calls. I was having to call the therapist saying, hey, I haven't gotten an AB3. What's going on? Um, so I would pick up the phone, but it does need to be reciprocated. And I'm not saying that all therapists are that way, but I've just found in the last few years it has started to fade. Uh, may have picked up in the last couple of years. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but the point is, is that the telephone is the most direct way of reaching anybody. Whether the therapist needs to talk to the adjuster or vice versa, the telephone is the most direct. Now, if on the insurance side, telephone adjusters are on the phone all the time, so they may not be available right then and there when you call, just as you guys are in between, in between clients, right? Uh, so the best thing to do is to leave your availability. Hey, Julie, it's Simon. I'm calling about so-and-so, claim number blah, blah. Um, I see you're not available, but I'm available after 3 o'clock today and tomorrow. Give a couple of days because, again, the adjusters may not be able to get to you that same day. So give your availability. 
If the telephone doesn't work, email, fax, because a lot of companies are becoming paperless. Their emails and their faxes are being sent straight to the desktop of the adjuster. If you guys have to have a discussion, if you're waiting for approval and you're not getting that within a certain amount of time, I say at the absolute latest five business days when you're looking for an extension outside of the DTPR, uh, if you're looking to, you know, any type of an approval, whether that be for supplies. Um, within the DTPR, we obviously have legislated amounts that we're allowed to have, or the therapists are allowed to have without any approval, which is great. But if there's just something extra that you, oh, this person really needs a shepherd's hook, and we've already used our 160, whatever the case is, um, sending in those requests. But if you're not getting an answer back from your phone call, from your email, from your fax within five business days, and that would be the absolute end, I would think, then unfortunately it is the supervisors and managers that you can go to. Um, as an adjuster, and again, I may have been a unique adjuster, <laughs> but I never believed in leaving anything unfinished. You asked for an extension, I give you an answer within two business days, whether by fax or by email. Uh, nothing done verbally for extensions because, again, who's to say, well, did, what day did I talk to Julie? What day did I talk to Simon? Mm. Um, but if you guys need to have a discussion about an action plan, what to do with this client, talk on the phone if you can. That is the best way to communicate. Um, and unfortunately, again, we talked about it before, not adjusters are all created equal, but by the therapist educating the adjusters, then they can have a better understanding of the situation that you're seeing in the clinic so that we can make better decisions. It's all about educating each other. Yeah. We need to educate you guys about how the insurance works and unfortunately there's procedures that we have to do and talk to so-and-so and get our T's crossed and I's dotted, but also at the same time, the therapists need to educate us so that we have a better understanding of what you're seeing in the clinic. That would be my suggestion about communicating. Yeah, and those are uh, those are fantastic points. Things happen when when those conversations occur, and just to you know to echo what Julie's saying, those pick up those pick up the phone opportunities, or those are the those are the meaningful ones, and that that's when things happen, and and the and the patient appreciates that for sure too. But there are bigger there are bigger obstacles than either physios or insurance companies can solve on their own with that, unfortunately. <music>well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's uh, great having you on the show today. Now, if you've been enjoying the new show, I'd love for you to leave a review on uh, iTunes as this just helps uh, more people find out about the podcast and we'd love to, to get your feedback. And if you want to check out the show notes uh, from the podcast, just go to ignitephysio.ca forward slash podcasts. And if there's any topics that you want us to cover, just uh, shoot us an email at hello at ignitephysio.ca and we'll make sure to get back in touch with you and, and see what we can do there. So anyways, thanks for joining us on the show today. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.